0: Cornelius stared at him in fear. "'What is it, Lord?' he asked. The angel answered, "'Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. "'Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. "'He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea.' "'When the angel who spoke to him had gone,' Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time Do not call anything impure Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. "'Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them.' "'Peter went down and said to the men, "'I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come?' "'The men replied, "'We have come from Cornelius the centurion. "'He is a righteous and God-fearing man "'who is respected by all the Jewish people. "'A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house.' so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Cornelius answered, "'Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, "'Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come.' Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water, They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, hello, everyone. It's great to be with you. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've gathered us here today. We thank you that we can sit and listen to this, a wonderful passage, an amazing passage, a passage that is so significant, not just in our own lives, but even in the history of our worlds. And Lord, we pray that we might understand this passage, and not just understand it with our minds, Lord, but that deep down in our hearts we might be transformed by your word. Amen. Amen. Although it's not covered in any history syllabus that I know of, Acts chapter 10 represents the second most important moment in human history. It is a great turning point. The the only one more important than this one is the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Without the events of Acts chapter 10, I would not be standing before you today. This building would not be built. Uh, There would be no debate over whether or not Australia is, was or ever has been a Christian nation. Without the events of Acts chapter 10, the advance of Christianity which has shaped the social, political, historical and legislative contexts of Europe, England, America, Australia, New Zealand, much of Malaysia, Singapore, Korea, India, Latin America, Hong Kong and all of Africa, it never would have taken place. Without Acts chapter 10, the majority of art, architecture, music and literature in the Western world would not exist or at least would be radically different. Without Acts chapter 10, there is no global movement called Christianity, just a little huddle of believers in the city of Jerusalem. Because in this chapter we find that God is committed to his global mission, the global growth of his gospel. That God's grace knows no bounds because Christ's work knows no limits. In in this chapter, we find something that is actually unique amongst all the religions and all the philosophies of our world, that God will accept anyone of any nation, regardless of colour, race, gender, profession, sexual history, social background, political orientation, or even previous religion. Anyone, if, to use the Apostle's own words... In verse 35, they but fear God and do what is right. And that such people will enter into the church as equals. There is no privileged elite or inner ring in the church of Jesus Christ. When we sit together in church, that person that you're sitting next to, be they prince or pauper, bishop or barber, they are a brother. They are a sister in Christ. We are equal, recipients of the same grace and serving the same Lord. God is not prejudiced. God has no favourites when it comes to his free offer of forgiveness and a place amongst his people. And that makes this chapter particularly stunning in the world in which we find ourselves today. In a world where accusations of racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and privilege and inequality and intersectionality, they're just kind of daily part of public discourse. And in a world that is so deeply divided like ours is, the news that God shows no favoritism should be and can be a balm to heal the wounded souls of many. So very simply today, I just want to answer three questions About Acts chapter 10 for us that are up on on the screen for you if you are the kind of person who likes to take notes. Uh, I just simply want to ask what happened and why is it such a big deal and what does it mean for us? And it would really help you to keep Acts chapter 10 open in front of you. So firstly then, what is it that happened? Well, really a, a very simple thing, a Gentile man named Cornelius and his family converted to Christianity. And Acts chapter 10 is clear once again that it is the Lord Jesus who's taking initiative in this mission. He's very carefully arranged the meetup, the meeting between Peter and Cornelius. There's multiple visions and, and multiple messages on both sides of this story. Uh, but who's Cornelius then? Because he's described to us in very positive terms. Come to, to chapter 10 verses 1 and 2, would you? He's put to us in such a positive way. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Uh, He's a very impressive individual. He's devout, he's good, he's humble, he's a good father, he's a good husband. But he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's he's politically connected. In fact, so impressive are his credentials, they're repeated three times in this chapter. Again in verse 4. And again in verse 22. In fact, any church would be blessed to have a man like this amongst their number and his family. And yet, he is still cut off from God because he's a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion from Italy. Uh, The Roman officer called, by the way, must have been fairly impressive because I don't think there's a bad centurion in the Bible Uh, Even the one who executed Jesus recognized that he was the son of God in the end. But this man, despite the positive way that he is described to us, he's still a Gentile. And that means that he's an outsider. He's not part of the Jewish family. He has no share in God's kingdom and right now he stands condemned by his sins. He is unclean, he is unacceptable and he is unsaved. No matter his good works. And yet an angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius and says, God has heard your prayers. Call for Simon Peter and ask for him to come and visit you. Now, meanwhile, Peter also receives a vision. And again, that reminds us that something very significant is happening when kind of both sides of the story are being directly communicated to by the Lord Jesus. But Peter has an odd vision, he has a vision of a, of a sheet, a, a picnic blanket uh, coming down from heaven filled with all sorts of animals and, and reptiles and, and birds. It's, it's overflowing with pork and bacon and lobster and bacon and prawn and did I mention bacon? It's, it's, it's full of all these things, full of all these foods that to, to many of us, but to me it, it seems very appealing. This seems like almost the ideal lunch and Peter is hungry. Uh, He's waiting for lunch to be prepared, but to Peter it would have been appalling because all of the foods that he sees on this picnic blanket are unclean. Uh, The Jewish food laws strictly forbade them from eating any of these animals and so there is nothing here that hungry Peter can eat. And three times Peter has this vision and this is Peter. He's used to having things drummed into him three times. And three times he refuses it. He's never eaten anything unclean like this, he says. And three times God says to him in verse 15, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this gives you some idea about how deeply Jewish the early church was, how deeply Jewish Peter was. Peter is still concerned about the distinction between clean and unclean foods even after the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught him in Mark chapter 7, that uncleanness and cleanness was not a matter of of food or drink, but a matter of the heart. That it's what comes out of a person, not what goes into a person, that makes someone clean or unclean. But yet Peter still hasn't sensed that this is about more than just food. This is about people. So Peter remains perplexed when the messages from Cornelius arrive in in verse 17. Uh, Peter again is told by the Holy Spirit to to go with them in verse 19 and really Peter still not knowing what's going on, still not understanding what the Lord Jesus is doing, goes to Cornelius' house. And then there is this extraordinary moment in verse 24 as the Jewish apostle meets the Gentile centurion. And in verse 25, Peter enters the home of the centurion probably the first time he has ever done such a thing and he finds this a group of people there a group of gentiles and peter is still thinking what on earth is it that i'm doing here why is it that the lord jesus has brought me here it's almost comical really isn't it uh, peter he's still confused he doesn't understand uh, he's here in a room full of people who haven't heard the gospel full of people who who want to hear about jesus after he's received two visions from God. And yet in verse 29, Peter's still standing around saying, you know, may I ask, why is it that you've sent for me? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing here? And then Cornelius speaks about his vision and pretty much says to Peter, Lord, may, may we hear about Jesus? And for Peter, the penny finally drops and he finally understands what this is about. And he utters in verse 34 and 35 what really is the key verses of the chapter. At verse 34, Peter begins to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. God's grace knows no bounds, for Christ's work has no limits. And then there's almost a complete repetition of the day of Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. Only this time the audience is not Jewish, the audience is Gentiles. But the message is the same and the response to the message is the same. Uh, The message is the same. Verse 36, Jesus Christ is Lord of all, preaches Peter. And we are the eyewitnesses of his death and resurrection in verses 39 and 40. Uh, this is a public truth. This is not something that is hidden. And now Jesus is raised to be the judge of the living and the dead in verse 42. And all believe him, who believe in him will receive the forgiveness of their sins in verse 43, just as the prophets testified. And it's a wonderful little moment in there, isn't there? Uh, in fact, there is, a, there is a little thing that's very helpful because there's still people around who will kind of come to you and they'll say, well, I like the God of the New Testament because He's all about forgiveness and love, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament because He's all about judgment and anger. Somehow as if there is two gods. Uh, but there's not two gods, there's only one God. And so what does Peter preach? Verse 42, what's the message of the New Testament? You will face Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. And what's the message of the Old Testament? All the prophets testify that forgiveness will be found for the one who believes in Jesus. God's grace knows no bounds, for Christ's work knows no limits. Anyone, anywhere from any nation who turns to Jesus will receive peace with God. The message is the same as Pentecost. And the response to the message is the same as well as it was on the day of Pentecost. Even before Peter finishes his sermon, the Gentile audience believes and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a way that all those who are there, all the the Jewish believers who'd come with Peter, instantly recognize. And the Gentiles begin to, to speak in tongues, praising God. It's the day of Pentecost all over again only this time with Gentiles. It's the Gentile Pentecost. They too have become believers. They too have been forgiven and embraced by God. The Spirit has made his home in their hearts, as the Spirit made his home in the hearts of the Jewish believers. And Peter realizes this immediately, that God shows no favoritism and accepts anyone from any nation who but fears God and does what is right by believing in Jesus And once again, Peter plays his role, not just as the eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, but also the eyewitness to the gospel going out to another group of people, a new group of people, just as he did with the Greek-speaking Jews in Acts chapter 2, just as he did with the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. So now he does with the Gentiles. And so seeing that the Gentiles have the reality of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of their sins... Peter then says, well, let us give them the symbol of this new reality. Let's baptize them with water, which welcomed them into the household of God and into the church. Now, Acts chapter 10, it's, it's, it's a simple story, really. It's, it's the first Gentile convert to Christianity, the first Gentile to bring himself under the rule of the Jewish Messiah. And it's a military leader of the occupying Roman forces at that. But why is this such a big deal? Why is this so important? And the answer is because it's anything other than a simple story in reality. We must understand the chasm that exists between Jew and Gentile. We must understand the religious, racial and cultural gulf that stands between the Jewish people and all other nations known as Gentiles. Uh, John Stott uh, summarises it like this. He says... It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf that yawned in those days between Jews on the one hand and Gentiles, including God-fearers, on the other. Israel twisted the doctrine of election into favoritism. She became filled with racial pride and hatred. She despised Gentiles as dogs. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such a one into his own home. All familiar discourse with Gentiles was forbidden, and no pious Jew would have even sat down at table with a Gentile. You couldn't eat with a Gentile. You couldn't do business with a Gentile. You couldn't enter the home of a Gentile, nor have them in your own home. And you certainly couldn't marry a Gentile. In fact, in many ways, you couldn't even touch a Gentile. And actually, we see that reflected in the passage time and time again. Uh, Peter's response in verse 14 to that vision of unclean animals, no, surely not I, Lord, I've never eaten one of these things. I've never eaten anything that is unclean. Peter is a pious Jew. And even in the first part of verse 28, Peter knows that it's forbidden for him to enter into the household of Cornelius. And the inappropriateness is only highlighted by the way that Cornelius responds to his coming. Cornelius actually falls down at Peter's feet in reverence, even in worship. Uh, A hint, perhaps, that Cornelius, even though he is a God-fearer, does not not know the God that he fears as much as he might think. And Peter knows that he will be criticised for entering into the house of a Gentile and eating with them, which he will be in chapter 11, verse 3. Uh, Peter was quite reluctant. It, It took considerable divine prompting to get Peter into that room with Cornelius and his family. And even once he was there, he had no idea why. The idea of him preaching the gospel to Cornelius so that he and his household might be saved, it still hadn't crossed Peter's mind until that moment when Cornelius shared his vision. There's great irony in this chapter. In fact, the the irony was right there back at the beginning. Because where was Peter at the very beginning of of the chapter, he was in the city of Joppa. And what's the city of Joppa? Well, it's the city that Jonah fled to when he didn't want to do what? Preach the message of salvation to a city of Gentiles. And that's very much where Peter is at the beginning of the chapter. This very much could have been a repeat of the book of Jonah. And yet spirit-filled Peter He's no Jonah. He might have been slow to get it, but eventually he does. By the end of verse 28, he realizes that vision about the sheep was not about food, but about people. And after hearing Cornelius' vision, he understands God chose no favoritism, but accepts anyone from any nation, from any background, who but fears God and does what is right by believing in Jesus. But because this is such a massive point and so unique in the religions and the philosophies of our world, God has gone out of his way to demonstrate this point. Time and time again, God is is active in this passage. Verse 3, the angel appears to Cornelius. Verse 11, the vision given to Peter, repeated three times. Verse 13, a voice from the Spirit comes to Peter. Verse 19, the Spirit speaks. Verse 44, the Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles and they speak in tongues. And so here is the point that cannot be missed, that God shows no partiality. Anyone from any nation who fears God and does what is right, who turns to Jesus, is acceptable to God. No one is outside the bounds of God's grace, for the work of Christ has no limits. The wonder of this message. Now, in a room like this, I, I imagine that there might be one person who's Jewish, maybe one or two, but for most of us, for the overwhelming majority of us now, this moment in Acts chapter 10 is the moment when the door is opened for us to be saved. God knows no discrimination in his offer of forgiveness and salvation. To anyone and the wonder of this is even greater even more acute when we pause to consider the petty prejudices that we have in our worlds the way that we discriminate in our world today those who are in those who are out those who have and those who have not the people we want to be friends with and the people that we snub the teams that we support and then the people who support the other team the way we look down upon each other across the political and economic divide, the accusations that we make against one another. It's all your fault that this world is such a mess. And the constant media-fueled frenzy to divide and to discriminate, the petty prejudices that our world is obsessed with, and yet not God. God is no respecter of persons. In every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable. And acceptable, by the way, there, it probably should be more literally translated as received. And that's the word that would, you would use when the, uh, the good friend arrives at your house for the family barbecue and you open the door and you, and you, and you rush them in and, and you embrace them as they arrive because you're so happy to see them. Anyone who fears God and does what is right by accepting Jesus is welcomed by God, finds favour with God, is part of the family, is embraced by God. And now they belong. God shows no favourites. And in his church, there will be no classism, there will be no racism, there will be no sexism, there will be no elitism. In many ways, Acts chapter 10 is mislabeled. Often when people talk about Acts chapter 10, they talk about the conversion of Cornelius. But the truth is, Cornelius is pretty much ready to go from verse 1. The real transformation in this chapter is Peter. You know, Peter is the one. His heart now has come to align with God's heart. Peter comes to realize now that if God shows no favoritism, then neither should he and neither should the church but they should embrace Cornelius as family one body together under Jesus Christ the Lord of all and so what does this mean for us then what does Acts chapter 10 mean for us well it is possible that I might imagine that because of who I am or the family that I come from or the culture that I've stepped out of that I could never be acceptable to God. And likewise, it is also possible to imagine that for all of those reasons, I must be acceptable to God. But God does not look upon any one of us and see those things. In every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right will be acceptable, will be received, will be embraced. Salvation isn't just for one race or one culture or one nation or one group anymore. No longer will one group of people ever be able to say, God is on our side and not on yours. And this is a message, this gospel message that's being proclaimed is, is bigger than culture, it's bigger than race, it's, it's bigger than nationality. And Acts chapter 10, in, in many ways, it brings us a wonderful clarity about the gospel because Acts chapter 10 actually makes crystal clear the way of salvation. Before Christ, salvation was a matter of birth and law, of being Jewish by birth and then being obedient to the law. And after Christ but before Cornelius, well, there was some confusion. Uh, We realise now that faith saved, but everyone was still Jewish by birth and so it almost looked as if salvation was a matter of birth and And faith. And it's not until Cornelius and after Acts chapter 10 that it becomes clear that salvation is by faith and by faith alone. That God shows no favoritism but accepts all people from every nation who fear Him and do what is right, as they rightly accept God's King and cling to Him for salvation. And this is the basis of our Christian freedom which is a wonderful thing that we ought to celebrate more often than we do. And so as you go home this afternoon to to tuck into your your prawn and bacon sandwich, which sounds strangely delicious, remember that that is a freedom that we have only because of Christ and only because of Cornelius. Uh, We need to rejoice in our freedom. We did not have to become Jewish to be saved. Uh, We did not have to give up on on, on being Korean or give up on being Chinese or give up on being white or or Indian or, or we did not have to give up these things, we did not have to give up our culture. Yes, it's true the Gospel will at times challenge our cultures, even correct our culture but we didn't have to give up on our culture to become Christian and we didn't have to give up our friends, we didn't have to give up our family, we didn't have to give up our careers in order to be saved, in order to follow the strict Jewish laws and the strict Jewish culture. Salvation is by faith and by faith alone. God's grace knows no boundaries for Christ's work knows no limits. And so where are our prejudices? Where are we tempted to show favourites? Who is the person in your life with whom you just would not share the gospel? Uh, in your workplace, it's it's full of different people. You, in your university, it's it's full of different people. Who is it that you would not share the gospel with? And why not? Is not Jesus Lord of all, including them? Can the power of the gospel not save even them? Now, if we've truly grasped this about God, if we've truly grasped that He has no favourites, then it does. It it will affect who I mix with. It will affect who I I open my home with to to, for the sake of the Gospel, who I will consider to be an, an acceptable person to extend an invitation to, who I'm ready to speak to, who I'm ready to let my children play with, where I'm prepared to live, what I'm prepared to do with my life, how I will spend my money, When we understand that God has no favourites, it changes everything. And in this way, we are an example to the rest of our world, we being the church. For our world is a world of deep divides. Our world is a world where people do play favourites. Our world is a world of politically charged rhetoric, aflame with accusations of all sorts of isms and all sorts of phobias. And such accusations are often leveled against our God and leveled against the church. But take heart from Acts chapter 10. Because this passage proves that such accusations against our God have no warrant. And we have a chance to prove such accusations wrong, we in the church... We as we sit together, we as we eat together, we as we fellowship together, different races, different cultures, different backgrounds and yet all one in Christ Jesus. We have a chance to prove such accusations wrong, even if it's just one person at a time. Even as they they come and they they meet us and we show them that we too, like our God, have no favourites. but that we, like God, will accept anyone if they but fear God and do what is right and follow Jesus. The grace of God knows no bounds, for the work of Christ knows no limits. What a message we have for the world. And what a change that message has wrought on our world. And what a change that message can continue to make in our world today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who shows no favoritism. That you are a God who accepts anyone from any place with any background if we but fear you and rightly accept Jesus, your King and our Savior. Lord, we pray that we would do that. We pray that we might be those who come to Jesus and submit ourselves to him and cling to him for mercy, knowing that's the only place that can be found. But well, we pray, Lord, that this truth would change us as well we pray that we might be those who show no favoritism but that we too might accept all who are fellow believers in jesus christ and so by doing lord we do pray that we might prove all the accusations of our world against you and against your people to be completely groundless And even though, Lord, we know that this will not convince anyone, nor will it stop the accusations from flowing, Lord, we pray that it might save some as they find acceptance, as they find reconciliation, as they are embraced by you, and as we embrace them too. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
0: let's stand